Lord God, I thank you so much for this Sunday, and thank you, Lord, for uh, just a place we can gather together to worship you. Thank you for your goodness, and thank you, Lord, that you are worthy to be praised. And Lord, I pray as we get into your word, Lord, may your spirit lead and guide us and teach us, Lord. Teach us about you, certainly teach us about ourselves, and, and Lord, um, may you guide this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Perfect timing. Um, title of the message is, Why Does Life have to be so hard? How many of us have asked that question? Why does life have to be so hard? Maybe you asked that this morning, right? Why does life have to be so hard? We ask that question about the most simplest things in life and the most complex things in life, right? Why does life have to be so hard? Why does opening a medicine bottle you know, the one you have to press down and twist. Why does that have to be so hard? Maybe you can relate. You know you're pressing down and you're just, and it's just like crunching your fingers, right? Why does it have to be so hard? Why does the, the plastic bags that we use to get produce, fruits and vegetables, why does the opening that have to be so hard? right? Have you, if you're like me, you go to the grocery store, and you tear the thing, and you're just like there for five minutes, trying to get that little crease to open that thing. Why does that thing have to be so hard? We ask those things about the simplest things, but even the most complex things in life, right? Why does it have to be so hard, so difficult to make ends meet? Why does it have to be so hard to have a healthy, maintain a healthy marriage? Why does it have to be so hard, so challenging? Why is it so hard to get a college education? Why does it have to be so difficult? Why can't it, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard for people in different backgrounds to get along? Why does it have to be so hard. Why is it so hard for parents and children to be able to sit together and just talk to each other civilly? Why does that have to be so hard? In fact, hard seems to just get harder as time goes on, right? You remember when you were a kid, memorizing the multiplication tables was so hard. That was the big stress at that age. And then as you get older, algebra is just so hard. When you're a kid, getting up, finding friends can be so hard. But then when you get older, finding a spouse can feel so hard. And then maintaining a healthy marriage, getting along with a spouse can be so hard. And then when you have a kid, raising a two-year-old can feel so hard. And then you get a 12-year-old can feel so hard. And then you have a 22-year-old can feel so hard. Don't worry, I'm not men mentioning my kids, right? All right, that's not my kids, right? But then 
You get a 92-year-old, and taking care of a 92-year-old can feel so hard. Many of us who've lived long enough, can, can, you, you've experienced different phases in life, and you wonder, can life get any easier? Does it get easier? Why does it have to be so hard? When did this all start to get so hard and difficult? Well, we're going to look at that question of when did life become so difficult? If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off in the garden and then just to, to recap a little bit. In chapters 2 and 3, we've been focusing on God's provision when he created man and woman, right? We talked about how he provided for them. Then we looked at their decision, the decision that man and woman made in eating of the fruit that was forbidden. They disobeyed God. And then we looked at the immediate consequences of their decision. We looked at that last week. And certainly that we can relate to the immediate consequences the man and the woman faced. And today we're going to look at the aftermath. And this is going to take a few messages, but we're going to look at the aftermath of their decision. And that aftermath wasn't just for the man and woman, but we, what we all experience. We all experience the aftermath of the decision the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, made when they chose to disobey God. They did the one thing that was forbidden by God. The one thing eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we looked at last week how the serpent did not force them to do anything, right? He didn't force them to do something. But they were persuaded to question God's word, question God's intentions, question God's character, and we saw that it was based on distorting God's truth with this deception, we saw that verse 6, when the woman saw that tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate it, and she gave also to the man or to her husband, and he ate. So we saw how really Satan's strategy hasn't changed since the beginning, that temptation is the means and the goal is rebellion, right? He tempts us. There may be a temptation. The goal is that we would rebel against God. So we looked at the immediate consequences in verse 7, that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they immediately experienced the knowledge of good and evil, which was what? They disobeyed God. And once they both disobeyed God, immediately they experienced the shame and the guilt. So we looked at that immediate consequence. And what their response was is what did they do? They covered and hide. They ran and hide. They are hid from God. 
And we can certainly all relate to that experience, right? When we know we've done something wrong, even as a little kid, we've learned our response is we hide, we cover it up. So we can relate to that experience. Then we saw in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me, you gave to me. Remember, you said I needed a helper. That's not a direct quote, but you get what I'm saying. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we saw the immediate consequences of their decision. Once they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they certainly experienced the knowledge of good and evil. We saw that God first calls out to the man after their experience, right? And then he addresses the woman. And we saw that the man and the woman's response upon their disobedience, but now let's see God's response. Verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to, the, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's interesting in verses 1 through 6 we see this brief dialogue with the serpent and the woman, right? In verses 1 through 6 in Genesis chapter 3. But then in verses 9 through 13, we see the Lord God confronting the man and the woman after their decision, right? He confronts the man, then he confronts the woman. Interesting, then, he starts from verse 14, our passage today. He then begins to address the three parties involved, right? He first, he starts off with the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Then he addresses the woman, and then he addresses the man. So it's interesting. You see this literary device here, this chiasm pattern here. So you can, you can see that pattern. He addressed, first he spoke to the man, spoke to the woman. Then he addresses the serpent. He speaks to the woman. He speaks to the man. Now it's interesting that if you notice, 
While God gives the man and woman an opportunity to speak, right? He asks them, where are you? What did you do? God does not give the serpent an opportunity to speak. That's interesting. With his words, he distorted the words of God to deceive the man and the woman. But God does not give them any opportunity to speak. There's no mistaking who has the position of authority here. We're going to look at the judgment against each party here, the serpent, the woman, and the man. And then we're going to look at some general observations of the aftermath of this. First, he addresses the serpent, right? He says, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you see all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now I got to admit, this is a very challenging passage to interpret and understand for a couple of reasons. And we addressed one of the reasons last week, right? Who is the serpent? That's a question. Who is the serpent? Is the serpent just a talking animal that was wiser and craftier than all the other land animals, which, as literally it says, or is this serpent representing Satan in some way, whether it's Satan himself, whether it's a, a, a figure of Satan, or Satan possessed a serpent? Who is the serpent? And I got that there's not an absolute conclusion to this. If you read it literally, it just reads as a serpent who was able to communicate and was craftier than all of the land animals. If you take into the other passages, particularly of the New Testament, it would seem the serpent is either at least influenced by Satan or represents Satan in some way, right? We looked at some of the verses last week. The character of the serpent certainly seems to be consistent with the devil, Satan himself, right? It's interesting here. A curse is declared upon the serpent. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And if you look at it literally, it seems, well, is this the origin of snakes, right? Was snakes used to be walking animals, like little lizards, and then now they became snakes. They had to crawl on their belly. Perhaps that's a possibility. Perhaps that is the case. I agree with some other commentators that this may not be the main point, right? This seems to be more representing the reversal of the status of the serpent. Because if you remember in the beginning of chapter 3, it's the serpent is described as what? Craftier than all of the other living creatures, right? So he seems to have some kind of elevated status sense of the other creatures. But here, there's the reversal after the curse, right? On your belly shall you crawl. You shall eat the dust of the earth all the days of your life. There's more of a humiliation status now after what the serpent had done. Either way, as you, how you interpret it, right? It doesn't give a whole lot of clarity of the identity of the serpent, right? If you look at it literally, it could simply be just... The serpent was able to communicate with Adam and Eve, and because of that, it is now humiliated and so forth. Certainly, taking all of Scripture, perhaps it was Satan in some form or some way or representation or so forth. But this doesn't even seem to be the more complicated part of this passage. 
It's the latter part, verse 15, that seems to be a little difficult. In verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the most common interpretation of this part of the passage is probably what you've heard of, right? You've probably heard this part of the passage interpreting as a prophetic message of the Messiah of Jesus, right? This is a foreshadowing of Jesus. There will be enmity, hatred between the serpent and the woman, and the woman's seed is viewed as referring to Jesus and the crucifixion. Perhaps you've heard something along those lines as this passage preached that way, that this is an illusion, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And now for me personally, I've heard this preached many times, and I've, I think, always have heard this preached, that this part of the passage is a foreshadowing of Jesus. I think that's what I've always heard. And for the most part, I've always kind of accepted it and says, okay, right? But if I'm honest, I've always struggled with the exact interpretation of this for the following reasons. Normally, the phrase seed refers to a direct descendant from the man, right? If you talk about the seed, you're talking about a direct descendant from the man. And so we can see that this could be a prophetic uh, pointing towards Jesus because it says the woman's seed, right? Now we know Jesus, you know, Mary had Jesus, conceived Jesus, but we know Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, right? We don't want to get specifics. I think most of us taking some kind of biology, you understand what I'm saying, right? So perhaps that part of not saying Adam's seed, but the woman's seed, perhaps that's an allusion to Jesus. The picture of the serpent's head being bruised and the heel of the man being bruised reads like a person stomping on a snake, right? I don't know if you ever come across a snake before. Hopefully you've never tried to stamp out a snake, right? But you can see this kind of picture of this conflict of dealing. If a man tries to get the snake and the snake tries to bite the heel and so forth, you see this kind of picture. But if you read this from a kind of a, a prophetic view, people would look at this and it's pointing to an allusion to the cross, right? Through the cross, Satan was defeated, but Jesus' heels or his feet were pierced. So a lot of look at this passage and see that this is a foreshadowing. The issue with it that's kind of confusing to me with this part is the idea of the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, right? If, if this is the serpent is supposed to be saying himself, what, what is the serpent, Satan's seed. Right? I still haven't kind of gotten a good answer about that. So I would say that this is not an easy passage to interpret with a clear, clean interpretation. So I would say this. In general, as we go through the Old Testament, we're going to see some things in that, that are, I believe there's going to be pictures of Christ foreshadowing of Jesus, types of Christ. I believe that in the Old Testament, God has painted a picture, set the stage for us to understand Jesus when he comes. Okay, so his plan of salvation unfolds, and we see pictures and types and foreshadowings of Christ. Okay, this certainly can be a foreshadowing. 
If you read it with that concept, okay. If you just read it literally, it just reads as an ongoing conflict between serpent and people, right? Okay, I think at the very minimum, I think that's understandable, right? At the very minimum, that's understandable. What I would say what's important as a student of Scripture is to realize that we may not have absolute clarity on every passage. We may not have absolute clarity. There may be different interpretations. They may look at one interpretation, look at another interpretation. They may say, hmm, which is accurate. And you may not have a clear, absolute understanding or certainty. And for myself, and whenever I teach or preach on a passage, if I don't have an absolute certainty of something, I would say, you know what, look, here's different interpretations of something. What I would always say, and to make sure, and for you as a student of Scripture, as you do your studies, I would say what you want to make sure of is that whatever interpretation you take from a passage, that you make sure that the result is consistent with the whole of Scripture. Consistent with Scripture. So if you have variations of these two interpretations, does it distort or change the whole of Scripture? The meaning, the story, God's message, God's character, all those things, right? And then if you need one, then you can kind of uphold it to everything else and say, okay, what is more likely, what is not? The identity of the serpent, a lot of people, there's some scholars, there's some commentators, pastors, stuff, they have different interpretations. Is it going to like end your salvation as you know it? I, I don't think so. I think it's one of those things that we could agree to disagree or we can say, oh, this is a good question. And it doesn't alter the message of Scripture. Okay? With that, that was my way of dealing with the identity of the serpent and this illusion. Is this a foreshadowing of the Messiah? It certainly could be. It certainly could be. I think we'll see a more clearer foreshadowing in a moment. What I do see is God acknowledges the serpent's role in the man and the woman's decision. The serpent's intentions was not so innocent, but was actually deceitful, right? If the serpent was just having a conversation, hey, what did you talk about with God? Did he really say that? If his intentions were harmless, the serpent would not have been dealt with. So obviously God holds the serpent's intentions accountable. But then let's go to the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Notice the emphasis on the degree of pain. Greatly multiply your pain, in pain and childbirth, in pain you shall bring forth children. Ladies, I'm sorry. Enduring physical pain is kind of interesting, has often been portrayed as a manly quality, right? Guys, if you grew up kind of thinking that way, enduring pain is a manly quality, right? Take it like a man. Don't be a girl. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's been said, right? But I have to admit, over the years, I've seen, I've witnessed men be pretty big wimps when it comes to pain. 
right? Ladies can attest to this. I've witnessed many women endure a great deal of pain, but men can be kind of wimps to pain. I remember the first time, oh, do I have time for this little story? All right, I have a little bit of time. I remember the first time, you know, my wife, uh, I need my wife to help, you know, kind of maintain, like, make sure I'm presentable in certain ways. And I remember when the first time my wife said, you know what, let me pluck this eyebrow. You have a, like a, a, a rogue eye, eyebrow that's just going this way. It's a little too long. I said, here, let me get it. She gets a tweezer. I'm like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's fine. It's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll brush it in place. So no, 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 let me get it, let me get it. And she gets the tweezers and, you know, I don't know, there's no, you don't make a sound, but, you know, I just plucked it out. And I was like, ow, ow. I didn't deal with it very well. But my first thought is, how can you ladies do this all the time? And ever since that moment, I mean, she is like a hawk. She's, oh, I see it. And we could be across the room. And she sees it. And when she would do it, I'm like, ow, ow. I said, Mike, I haven't even touched you yet. (laughs) Hold still. Hold still. It's like, boom, 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 boom. I'm like, what are you talking about? Men can be wimps when it comes to pain. God gave women the incredible, uncanny ability to endure pain. Pain each month that men were very thankful we don't have to endure. We don't like stomach aches, let alone to endure the pain that women have to endure. But enduring pain is a specific consequence of the woman's decision to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So women, can you imagine a painless or less painful delivery? The consequences for her part was life-altering. And there's two parts of God's judgment to the woman. One, increased difficulty. There's pain in childbirth. But then there's going to be an increased difficulty in the relationship. There's going to be a relationship conflict. Both parts relate, you know, both parts of God's judgment to the woman relates to the relationship between the wife and the husband. It's interesting, right? Pain and childbirth will not keep the woman from having intimacy with the husband and bearing children. All right? Some of us, if some people and many men have said, if I'm going to have to endure some pain, forget it. We're not going to do it. We're not going to have kids, right? If that was the case, if this pain was going to interrupt things, we would be a lot less populous earth, right? But there's going to be some enduring, there's going to be some conflict still. There's going to be pain, but yet there's going to be still that intimate relationship. Pain will not prohibit that intimacy with the husband and wife, but there's going to be a challenge in the relationship. Now, when I thought the serpent's part was hard to interpret, this part is not so easy either. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, ladies, you may not like this part. Men, you may not like this part. This is not an easy part to interpret. That word desire, the Hebrew word desire, means to desire, longing, craving, like, or of a man for, or for a woman, or of woman for a man. This word is used only three times in the Old Testament. It's used three times. 
In one instance, in Song of Solomon, in chapter 7, verse 10, it says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So the context is like a, a romantic desire that we would have, that kind of longing, right? But then the other instance this word is used is in chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis. In that context, God is speaking to Cain. God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. That other word, and he shall rule over you, that word rule in Hebrew also refers to to rule or have dominion. That word also is in that same verse, chapter 4, verse 7, when God speaks to Cain. We'll get to that passage, I don't know, in a month, I don't know, in, in a bit. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and it's desire for you, but you must master it. That word master is the same word that we see when he talks to Eve, he shall rule over you. Ladies, how would you like that sound? Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall master you. Does that sound good? You don't like that translation, huh? You want to use different interpretation. So what does that mean? This is the difficulty of this part of it. What are these two words meaning? What is it referring to? The woman's desire for the husband, and the husband will rule over, rule the wife, right? What does that mean? And that's a challenge. Well, I think both, both instances speak to a conflict of desire and control in both contexts. The immediate aftermath of the decision is conflict in the relationship between the man and the woman, or specifically the husband and the wife that did not previously exist. So previously, before their decision, decision, there was no conflict of desire, no conflict of control of authority prior to eating of the fruit. We're going to deal more with this when we talk about marriage. So I'm going to get that concept at the risk of men abusing that or women abusing it and just hold off on it when we deal with marriage. We're going to deal with that in a couple of messages from now. But I will say that if we're honest, when the man and woman made this decision as a couple, the consequence was going to be that there's going to be conflict in the relationship. And if you've been married or if you've been in a relationship, you can see that that conflict continues throughout human history. When I asked earlier, why does marriage, having a healthy marriage, have to be so hard or difficult? Well, we go back and trace to the beginning. Let's go on to the man. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God's judgment upon the man is very clear. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Now let me pause for a second. This should not be understood as a lesson in do not listen to the voice of your wife. Okay? I want to make that clear. 
That is not the takeaway from this Sunday. So in your car ride home, if you came with your spouse, husbands, the lesson is not, see, I am not to listen to the voice of my wife. That is not the lesson. The lesson is that he listened to a a voice other than God. The problem with Adam was twofold. He listened to the woman's voice over God's, and he directly disobeyed God's command. Right? Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat. This is the direct consequence of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the direct consequence and effect of the knowledge of good and evil. Do we listen to God or do we listen to others more? That's the conflict we face on a daily basis. Are we listening to God's voice? Do we put God's voice above all other voices in our life? Or are we so quick to listen to other people's voices? What other people have to say? What other people think? Whether it's about us or about God or about life in general, right? Do I honor God's command? Or do I want to do what I think is right? Right? If you sum up their decision, is all in those two things. Do I honor God above my own voice? What I think is right. And you see, God seems to hold the man more accountable here. Notice, who did he confront the first, first time? He confronted the man first, right? Where are you? He has a more extended conversation that we are given with the man. And now he reserves the judgment for the man last. Now, how many of you who have a sibling, any of you have siblings? How many of you got in trouble with your sibling? And you got caught? Whoever dealt with you, mom or dad, whoever was more fearful, did you want to go first or did you want to be dealt with last? I got to admit, if you were called last, that's probably not a good sign. If it was me, I'd rather be talked to first than last. Because when you're talked to last, that can take a long time. When I was a dean, I was investigating problems. If you were last, that was not a good sign, right? You don't want to be dealt with last. So if you get in trouble, mom, dad, can I go first? (laughs) Can you talk to me first? God speaks to man last. In addition to having the relational difficulty as God stated with the woman, he tells a man in pain and hardship, you will work for food. You will also endure pain and hardship. But the second thing, you will experience physical death, just as God had said back in chapter 2. God gave man the job of cultivating the land, and assumedly before this, it was all pleasure. Can you imagine that? If you work the ground, if you garden or whatever like that, it was all pleasurable. Wouldn't that be nice? 
I might have actually liked gardening. Maybe not, but I don't know. But because of it, in pain and hardship, he will work. And they will experience physical death. It's ironic. The man will return to the ground in which he spends his whole life toiling over. Isn't that a little ironic? All your life, you're going to work the ground in hardship and in pain, and in the ground is where you will return. So he deals with the serpent, he deals with the woman, and he deals with the man. There's some interesting observations here. The connection between God's judgment upon the serpent and the man is kind of interesting. You see some parallels here. God pronounces curses when speaking to the serpent and speaking to the man, but he doesn't to the woman, right? The serpent was cursed, and when he speaks to the man, the ground was cursed on account of what the man did. But it's interesting to note, the man and the woman was not cursed, right? The serpent was cursed, the ground was cursed because of what the man had done, but the man and woman was not cursed. God makes strong statements against their actions, Direct accountability from the serpent, what the serpent did, and what the man did. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, right? He said that to the serpent. In verse 17, he says, talks to the man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. It's just interesting. He doesn't say that about the woman. He doesn't say, because, woman, you listen to the voice of your serpent. He doesn't say that. Why? I don't really know. It's just interesting. Another, a third parallel God repeats the duration of their consequences. To the serpent, cursed are you. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And to the man, he says, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Interesting. What to make of it? I don't know. I'll let you think about that. But what we see in the aftermath of their decision The man and woman, what is the aftermath of the decision? One, we see mortality, right? Now they are mortal. They will face physical death. The aftermath of the decision is they will experience hardship in their life. And they will experience relational conflict in their life. And maybe the more damaging, more significant, they have now experienced the knowledge of good and evil. They now have conflict with God. Because now they experience and know obedience and disobedience, good and evil, what God desires and what they desire. And that breeds conflict. Life will now come through pain and hardship and conflict. But more than that, man will now have to struggle with obedience and disobedience, good and evil, devotion to God and devotion to self. And outside of God's intervention, what does that leave man and woman? Slaves. The Bible talks, we are slaves to our flesh. That when we have these two decisions outside of God's intervention, what are we left with? Our own selfish desires or what we think God may want from us. 
Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever kept track on a daily basis, maybe in five minutes. Have you ever kept track five minutes? Do I do what God wants or what I want? I never dared to do that because I don't want, <laughs> I don't think it's going to, I don't think the scale is going to go in favor of God. That's why we needed Christ. But it's interesting, after all this, after all the aftermath, after what all God provided, and Adam and Eve's decision, and the consequence, and the aftermath of all these things, you know what is still the theme in the end of chapter 3? Life. Life is still the theme as chapter 3 concludes. Verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. It's interesting, the man called woman in chapter 2, verse 23. And here in verse 20, the man names the woman Eve. God still gives the man the authority to name the woman. He names her Eve, the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Remember what happened. As soon as they made the decision, what did they do? They tried to cover their guilt and shame. They covered their fig leaves, but that would have been inadequate. So before God banishes from the garden, he covers them wholly with the, with the skins, garments of skin. Now this I do see as a clear foreshadowing of what Christ will do. Man was unable to adequately cover their sin. God will cover their sin. I believe this is the first sign of a sacrifice. It's not obvious, but I think it's obvious to me. That out of a sacrifice, God's covering will cover them. And I certainly think that's a foreshadowing of what Christ will do. Certainly a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system, which is a foreshadowing of what Christ will do. Christ's sacrifice will be the ultimate and full atonement for sin. Verse 22, we'll wrap it up with this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Even in judgment and punishment, God shows mercy. He shows mercy. How is that merciful? Because we saw that there was an option, the opportunity to eat of life. If they ate of the tree of life, they would live forever. But God said they are, or had chosen to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If they ate of it, the tree of life afterward, they would live forever. I assume that then they would live forever in that state of sinfulness and rebellion. So God says, we cannot allow this to happen. He banishes them from the garden so they do not make that mistake. I see that as God's mercy. God says, I will make the plan of salvation and redemption for them. We'll get into more of the implications of this in the next messages. What does that impact us? You you talked about why does life have to be so hard. I think it's important for us to understand 
that even God's mercy and his kindness doesn't cease when life gets hard. In fact, if life is so hard, whether it's from the decisions you made, the consequences of the decisions you made, or you're a victim of someone else's decisions, if life gets hard, instead of running away from God and hiding from God, that should draw us closer to God. And for, in fact, I urge us, if life feels so hard for you right now, all the more reason to draw even closer to God. Draw towards his mercy and his kindness. Because even in the consequences, God shows his mercy to the man and the woman. And he extends that to us today. Even if you've done something that you feel is unforgivable, there's no going back. There's no restoring it. I can't make it any easier or any better. All the more reason to go before the God who can restore and show mercy and forgiveness and kindness. We're going to look at more of the aftermath as we go as in the coming weeks. If you're going through hardship and pain today, draw closer to the Lord. Because God did not end fellowship with the man and the woman after this point. And if you did something, don't think that God has cut off fellowship with you. Your relationship with God is irreplaceable, not irreplaceable, irreparable. That's not a word, but picture that as a word. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you and Lord, I know you could have easily, after, the, after what Adam and Eve did, the man and woman did and disobeyed, you could have easily said, that's enough. But Lord, you extended your mercy. You even protected them. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's struggling with shame or guilt, that, Lord, you would remind them that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness. And that your love certainly covers a multitude of sin. And that, Lord, if life is so hard and difficult now, Lord, I pray that that would cause us to draw even closer to you. And if people are running away from you or hiding from you today, that, Lord, you would draw them out of their hiding and that they bow before the God of mercy and forgiveness.